Y'all, you are in for a treat today. This is, and I and no discredit to anybody who else who's been on the podcast. We have had some phenomenal guests, but this guy works for the Green Bay Packers. Yes, we have a Green Bay Packers director of performance psychology and team behavioral health clinician, Dr. Chris Carr, on the podcast this week. Luckily, when I was at Purdue, we had some incredible sports psychologists on staff. And even though I actually wasn't allowed to work with him as an athlete, that's another story for another day. It was actually when I was playing professionally when I got to meet up with him on a more consistent basis and learn the incredible tools that he has to give. Now, today, I'm honored to have him on the show because he is going to go over things like the specific stuff that if athletes build routines, if they have energy management, which is controlling those butterflies, focusing their concentration on their visualization and feel and the power of journaling and goal setting. These are things that I know you've heard me say a million times on the pod already. And if you haven't, go back to day one where I talk about some of these things in further detail. But Dr. Carr, like this clinician and psychologist is about to go over this in such a minute way to where get out your notebooks because he is about to drop so many incredible tools and resources, free resources for your athlete to really get mindful with herself and perform at the highest level that we all want her to. So like I said, goal setting is going to be huge. This is actually one of the first things he always teaches his athletes. At the professional level, there's still goal setting. And building these action-based behaviors throughout the week that when they say they're going to promise to journal two times a week or three times a week, they stick to that behavior. And those action steps are what help them get closer to their big goal of winning a championship. Now, if you guys followed the Green Bay Packers last year, this recording was actually done before their season of postseason had started. So the 2020 season where they went 13 and three and they lost so close to the Buccaneers who ended up winning the championship. This was recorded just prior to that. But there is so much he has done for this program. Like when they hired him as the director of performance psychology, Aaron Rodgers, everybody knows who that is, right? Quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. He gave praise publicly on Twitter about how excited he was to have him on staff. That's because he, one of the best quarterbacks, knew there was still more that he could learn to become the best. And they went 13-3 and in that season, which was a huge comeback from seasons prior that just weren't up to par with their standards. I'm pumped to see what they do in 2021. Holy smokes. I'm so excited about this. And I really need to stop talking about this because this is going to be an episode where you're going to learn so much. And if you have an athlete here, might be the perfect time to get her on. But some of these ideas and habits that we're going to be talking about are things that you've heard, but now actually have specific action along with it to help your athlete become the very best version of her. So without further ado, Director of Performance Psychology and Team Behavioral Health Clinician, Dr. Chris Carr is on the pod. Hey there, I'm Ashley Burkhart owner of Ashley B Training, former D1 athlete, 
and professional athlete in the game of softball. I even spent a little bit of time coaching at the college level as well. But now I coach athletes and especially youth athletes. And I try to teach them the ways to become the very best versions of themselves. And I know that they can't do that without a support system that will do anything and everything to make sure their dreams and their goals happen for them. A lot of times I hear parents and coaches saying, hey, I'm just gonna dish my athlete off to you. Hopefully you can figure out what her issue is. Here's the deal. That's not how we should coach. That's not how we should parent. And I can tell you right now, I'm not a parent, but your athlete is the most influenced by you. And I truly believe that you are one of the reasons why she plays the game. And I truly believe you are one of the reasons why she plays so hard. So if we can learn from some of the greats, I'm gonna have some of the best softball players Some of the best softball players, parents, even my parents and my family are going to be on this podcast sharing our journeys with you so that when the cleats do come off, you know what to say so that she can learn from her mistakes sooner, so that she can become the best version of her. And that's what we want. We want our athletes to be able to thrive. And that's why we're here. So welcome to this podcast. This is going to get real. This is going to get deep. And I'm here to challenge your thinking. That's why I coach. I'm really excited for you to be here. And I can't wait to hear who else is going to be along this journey with us. Learning from some of the best. I'm going to be learning too. So whip out your notebook and let's head to the next episode. Hey everyone. Welcome to another episode of the When the Cleats Come Off podcast. I'm here with someone that I met back in college. He was a sports psychologist for me, and I got to know him really well at Purdue. Dr. Carr, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks, Ashley. Glad to be here. Uh, This is going to be so much fun. But for those people that maybe don't know what you're up to, you just have a new gig. You're with the Green Bay Packers now, which is so awesome. Can you guide us through you know, what got you into sports psychology and maybe your journey to get to where you are today? Sure. I mean, it's a uh, the the older I get, the longer it takes. So I'll try to keep <laughs> it brief. But I was a Division three college football player. Uh, played at Wabash College in Indiana. You know, I was a psychology major because I loved the field of psychology, but never thought about continuing it past undergrad. Uh, actually, finished my undergraduate, and I went to Ball State University. I could live home. I could get a graduate degree, and I was a graduate assistant football coach. At one point, I thought I was going to go into coaching, so I did counseling psychology as my master's because I thought, well, of all the psychology disciplines, I liked helping. Um, I, you know, I've been an FCA camp counselor. I, you know, I, I, I wanted to be in a helping profession, so I thought maybe I'd be a high school football coach and guidance counselor. It would wouldn't hurt. And as paths go, I I did the counseling field, and uh, one of my practicums was in an addictions treatment unit, and I found it really challenging. And that was back in the day when a graduate assistant coach cut, literally cut film strips and did really boring stuff, and I wasn't getting the coach on the field. And I think there was a destination, there was a plan, power greater than me kind of said, no, I think you're going to be better in psychology. So I finished my master's. I worked four years with adolescent drug and alcohol treatment. And I worked with kids that were in a hospital for six weeks because of their addictions. Uh, I started doing prevention work and I had friends who were coaches and someone mentioned sports psychology. And I, I had never really heard of the field. And this was after I got my master's, 
I knew there were psychologists that could help athletes, but uh, I found out that most people calling themselves sports psychologists were either A, not a psychologist, which that's not cool because psychology is a licensed profession. You're basically breaking the law if you call yourself one. (laughs) Or B, they were a psychologist who maybe played Little League baseball or high school sports and thought that was sport knowledge. And Mm. sports psychology is a whole different discipline. So long story short, went back, got my PhD in counseling psychology and did my minor in sport and exercise psychology. So I did the academic preparation while I was training as a counseling psychologist. Spent the third year of my PhD at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And then my whole goal was to be a psychologist that works with athletes. And for the past almost 30 years, that's what I've been doing. So um, went from Washington State, Arizona State to Ohio State, to back home to Indiana, to working with Purdue and developing their sports psych program, developing program at Indiana University, working with Ball State, Butler. And then I was still working with Olympic sports. I've been to two Olympic games, uh, worked with the Kansas City Royals for six years, started working in the NBA, worked with the Indiana Pacers. And then what happened as I was at St. Vincent Sports Performance in Indianapolis is I started doing consulting with the Green Bay Packers. And coming in about 10 days a month, working with the team, the players, the coaching staff, the organization. And then at the end of last season, end of 2019, they approached me about being full-time. The NFL currently has five teams that have full-time psychologists as their team mental health team psychologist. Now, my title here is a director of performance psychology. And I'm the team's behavioral health clinician. So I don't separate between all performance and mental health over here. To me, it's a human being. They're, they're young men and their whole span varies between having to be an elite football player on Sundays to dealing with relationships. And so for me as a psychologist to be able to understand the performance psychology tools. Um, I do a lot of education with our position groups, with our team. We have materials available on the iPads that every player has. I do individual consulting. Everything is confidential because I'm a licensed psychologist. It's part of my ethics and my role. And then I coordinate all the mental health resources in the community and work with our sports medicine staff. So it's really an exciting opportunity to be in an NFL organization and and to really, just like sports medicine has evolved in strength and conditioning and sports nutrition to bring the performance psych piece. So uh, this is my first year in the full-time role and I'm really enjoying it. Oh, that's so much fun. And I just remember sitting in your office at Purdue talking about the crazy things that, you know, actually at the time I was playing professionally, going through a lot of things, and you've heard all the things. And a lot of people who have tuned into the podcast have heard some of the things because I feel like sharing a part of my journey can maybe help someone else. And and so because yeah. you you got to know me so well, I feel like there were things that I, I could share with you because of the relationship that we built. Um, I wasn't sharing all the deep things day one, but I was sharing a lot of things that were just going on in my brain. So if, if you could just, I don't know, tell me what maybe the common questions, you know, athletes maybe come up with you with are, do you, are there a couple that are just like, yeah, you hear this one a lot, or, you know, you're talking about relationships. Do you hear about that a lot? What are some of the common questions you hear from athletes? Well, in the past many years of my practice, I would say that, you know, there's a whole variety of reasons that get someone into my door. 
you know, being in this position full-time, being at practices full-time, it gives me an opportunity to have informal chats, being in the training room, just being in the weight room. Now, obviously, COVID is a whole different deal, and it's really kind of put a blanket over everything we can do. But fortunately, I had built up a little bit of a deposit with the team for the majority, and it's always changing. Rosters change. But I think players know that I'm here as a resource. But in my, in, in my career, I'd say what typically gets an athlete in my office is they're just not performing in their sport. Mm. They're either noticing there's a lot of anxiety or they have a lot of self-doubt, like they're not feeling as confident as they were. And sometimes confidence issues are just a matter of process. You know, a, a really elite high school travel ball athlete that, that commits to a Division One program sees the accomplishment of a dream, and then all of a sudden they get into that Division One program, and the ball's moving faster at them, and the the all the players are quicker and stronger, and and making that adjustment, of course, you're going to have some doubt, but that confidence may be impacted not just on the field, but but maybe in a relationship, maybe in their family dynamic, and that, that kind of what scares me a little bit uh, with folks that don't have the counseling or the, the clinical training is, you know, where they say, well, I just deal with the performance side. And, and Sean McCann's a, a good friend of mine. He's a clinical psychologist. He's the senior sports psychologist for the U.S. Olympic Committee. He's been there for over 25 years. And I know he was interviewed one time during an Olympic Games, and, and they asked him when he's at the Olympics, are you dealing with more performance issues or more personal issues? And he said, everything is about performance. Yeah. And that's how I view kind of that relationship. So as a psychologist, then you develop a therapeutic relationship and it takes time to develop trust and you can't just demand it. And it, it, it's really based on the process of the athlete. The athlete who gets something out of our work together, they do so because of the investment they put into it. Mm-hmm. I think our field, uh, it's just my pet peeve, our field likes to, I think, well, I don't have websites. I don't have links. I don't have that. I think your best work is reputation. And I think your best work is the athletes trust that you're confidential. And it's great when someone shares their experiences. We've had some veteran players on this roster here in Green Bay share experiences publicly and within the team that have helped validate and support my role. But it's not because of me. It's because of their work and, and the gains they get. So I think it takes time and a commitment and trust and that's not always easy um yeah. so i i, I want to be very clear it's not just about throwing a mental skills technique at someone and then it sticks and now their batting average increases 30 it doesn't do it that way uh, right uh, usually when an athlete finds a, a really good performance and they've had an appointment they come in they're excited and it's like well you just found something you already had mm-hmm. i didn't give you anything new I learned almost 40 years ago when I was doing addictions treatment, and it was through my own growth as a therapist, was um, if I was going to take credit for every patient I worked with that got sober, I needed to take credit for everybody that relapsed. Right. You, you couldn't have it both ways. Yes. And I think our field is kind of like, oh, well, they worked with this team, and this team won conference or this team won state. They must be pretty good. Well, the team is pretty good. The sports psych person may have been a nice resource, but they didn't win the state or Big Ten because of them. Right. And I think I think the athletes you work with have to understand, just like you're a resource, but the more they put themselves into learning the skills, the more they'll take out of it. 
And, uh, and I find that most athletes come in and, and I've watched it generations now, decades I've been doing it. More and more athletes just, they come in because they know the mental part is so important and they have a resource and they want to get better with it. So those are the fun athletes to work with. Yeah. I think it's crazy when, when I work with maybe a new athlete and, you know, initially they're coming in to get better at hitting, for example, Mm -hmm. they're like, I need to fix my hitting. I need to fix my hitting. I'm not performing. And it's funny how you see people are used to see more people come in when they weren't performing, but now you're seeing people come in because they realize that you're part of the puzzle that you can help them think in a better way. And I take a lot of pride in hit as a hitting coach because I'm not teaching. I mean, I'm teaching how to be a better hitter. Yes. But you're not going to be able to perform in the box without the belief and people supporting you that you can do this. You know, you can believe that you can. And it took me, by the way, our work together, it took me a year and a half to truly put that work and see it happen for me in the professional field. And it it eventually did. And as soon as that moment clicked for me, it was like lights out. I finally knew what I was capable of again. Because I was in a pretty bad place when I started meeting with you. And you know that. But we, we went over some tactics that I loved. Um, meditation, breath work, and a lot of visualization. Um, and I know a lot of people can benefit from those, those things that I'm sure you're, you're working with your professional players with now on those three things. Can you like elaborate yeah. you know, what those things are and how they benefit athletes? There's a lot of sports psych books, right? Yeah. You can find a lot of baseball books, ball sports in particular. And I've always kind of said, if you took the whole library of books and you just squeezed them all, they'd all kind of say the same thing. The field and discipline academically of sports psychology, we really haven't kept up on the research as much as we should. And unfortunately, it's because our academic institutions haven't really embraced sports psychology as an academic discipline. And the people who are working in the field are pretty proprietarial. They're going to protect their stuff. All of my interventions are evidence-based, practice-based. You know, I, I like reading journals. Maybe that's the little nerd in me that likes to keep up to date with research because I think it's important enough that if I'm going to recommend an intervention to an athlete that I have some confidence that it's a useful tool. Yeah. But, but I like to start simple. So there's kind of just some four basics or four ingredients that I talk about really having a good routine. The first one I consider with all my clients is journaling, Mm. which really impacts self-awareness because the more self-aware you become as an individual, the more you hold yourself accountable. Yeah. If you have parents that come in and oftentimes the parents are the ones that say, Hey, you need to go work with Ashley. And which is awesome. Parents trying to find a support, trying to provide resources for their daughter or their son to kind of get better. That's not problematic, but if that individual, that young athlete doesn't take it to heart for themselves, it's probably not going to be very effective. Right. And I know that my daughter was a competitive gymnast and was a division one athlete, competed in college gymnastics. And, and she knew where there were times I was kind of talking like dad. And there were times that I was trying to share tools. I think journaling is such an s- important process because the, the very kind of first mental skill that you can incorporate in journaling is goal setting. And to me, goal setting represents action-based behavior because even if you set a goal that I'm going to write in my journal two times a week, or I'm going to set a goal of doing 10 minutes of relaxation before I go to my lift or before I go to my hitting drills, if I can be goal-directed and set controllable goals, I can measure my progress 
And it also what kind of brings my motivation along. Some athletes at this level or elite level I've worked with are just talented and they're talented just when they show up. So they've got a God-given ability to be fast, quick, strong, whatever. And when they get to some level of their athletic development, they'll be challenged on that. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think you have to start working on the mental piece. So to me, journaling and goal setting are kind of like they go hand in hand. As a matter of fact, even here in my office, I have a bunch of these notebooks. Mm -hmm. So when I start working with a player, there's your journal. I start. Fine. <laughs> I, yeah. See, I give this to these guys and people say, well, these guys aren't good. Yeah, they're, they're really good with it. The second mental skill that you have to put in your toolbox is basically energy management, mm -hmm. controlling your butterflies. Yeah. And that's where we get into the physiology of athletic movement. And if I can summarize it simply in ball sports, and I know that's what you work with. I had six years with a major league baseball team. When you get ready to compete in a sport where failure is predominant, and it's kind of like the difference. I remember when I was interviewing with the Royals and I went to dinner with George Brett, who's unfortunately generations now don't know George Brett, but George Brett is in the Baseball Hall of Fame, played for the Royals his entire career. He was a heck of a hitter. He's, you know, I said, what's the toughest thing a professional baseball player has to deal with mentally? I was asking, and I've worked with college athletes, obviously, but not professionals. And he didn't even hesitate when he said failure. He said, Doc, if I have 100 at-bats and I fail 70 times, I'm in the all-star game and I'm making a lot of money. He said, however, if I take every failed at-bat back to the dugout with me, I don't get out of the minor leagues. And it was this concept of how do you deal with a, a sport where sometimes a pitcher is going to throw you something you didn't expect. They're going to hit the co corner and you're going to strike out. It doesn't mean you're a bad hitter. But what happens is athletes get so paralyzed with anxiety and nervousness about performing well. And that's a very, very kind of common central nervous system fight or flight mechanism. We can't change it, but you can teach yourself how to control it. And the way you do that is you teach yourself relaxation, mindfulness exercises. And I tell athletes I work with four to five times a week, 15 to 20 minutes of practice with a relaxation exercise where you are fully invested in teaching your body how to relax by slowing mm -hmm. your breathing, lowering your pulse. And the whole purpose of the exercise is to achieve what we call the relaxation response, where you kind of have this very centered feeling. It's just like weight training. The more you practice it, the easier it is to apply it. So the more you lift, the stronger you get, the bat speed increases, they all work together. Well, relaxation helps us to learn we don't want to get rid of butterflies. We just want to teach them how to fly in formation. Ooh. And you know you're going to have that moment where you know that you're either going to pinch hit or you're going up to bat and there's two outs and bases loaded. You're down by two runs. It's the ability to center, to focus. That's going to be key for an athlete at any level. Plus, if I learn how to manage my anxiety, I think it helps keep my balance. So that's the second skill. The third one is basically what we call focus and concentration skills. And that's where visualization and imagery come in. Mm. Now, the reason I have that as the third skill is because if you try to visualize when you're anxious and nervous, you will close your eyes and see the fail outcome or the negative outcome about 80% of the time. Wow. So you'll visualize swinging and missing. You'll visualize throwing a ball outside of the strike zone. 
But if you're calm and you're centered and you're focused, because we know that relaxation enhances imagery use, the research has shown that. So I really try to get athletes to practice the relaxation. So for example, uh, when I do a visualization exercise, it's going to be 25 minutes. But that first 13 minutes is just going to be the relaxation piece. And then once you're relaxed, visualize being in the moment. And, and if I was working with a hitter, I don't think you have to visualize three at-bats. I think you visualize one at-bat, four to five pitches, and incorporate the kinesthetics, the feel. Um, I know when I worked with baseball guys, if they were pitchers, they would actually hold a ball in their hand while they were visualizing. So when they were visualizing a two-seam fastball or they were visualizing a change and how they would change the grip, they would adjust it so kinesthetically they could feel it while they were doing the relaxation. Wow. Can I interject it, there with a, with sure. a story? Because yeah, absolutely. it's crazy to think, I remember some of my best at-bats that I've ever had in my collegiate career. And every single one of those at-bats were because I was thinking about one of my best performances I've ever had. Like I was literally in the box and relaxed because I was imagining that three for four game that I had against UCLA where I felt loose. This is what my bat felt like in my hand. And like putting myself back into that moment allowed me to just ball out and play well because I simply just went back to a moment where I was very successful. But that wasn't until my senior year. So it clearly is something that, you know, later on, and I know I shared with you, I studied sports psychology was a class that I had my senior year. Mm -hmm. And that was when I first started adopting some of these practices. And that was one of them. And I can truly attest that that is, that is something that will, once you understand those first two elements first, and you can, and you can really apply that visualization and the imagery, like that is, it's, it's one of my favorite things that I had as an athlete. And it truly, and I know people aren't, going to have to be convinced because you're amazing and people are probably soaking this up like a sponge. But that is one of my favorite practices. And that's, you know, just a simple example of how that really does work. So, well, and it's not uncommon for an athlete at this level. I work with, say they've done imagery in the past or visualization. And I always ask them, how much relaxation do you do before you visualize? Mm. And quite often they, they, they have to think about it. And I always encourage them at about five to 10 minutes of relaxation first. Because if we're stressed or if we're in, see, I don't believe in the word slump. <laughs> I think slump is just a word people use as an excuse for their next bat at bat. Mm. Because the reality is when you say you're in a slump, because maybe you're 0 for 10 or 0 for 15, it does not change your next at bat. The pitcher can't move in closer. <laughs> they, they don't give you a little mini bat to hit with. You don't start with an 0-2 count. It's the same performance scenario. The only thing that's different is you have heightened anxiety, increased self-doubt, more tension in your body. And any hitter knows the tighter they feel in their shoulders and arms, the less bat velocity swing they have. They're not as in control. And when a batter says they're struggling to make contact, that doesn't exude confidence in their abilities. Right. And most really good hitters will tell you that the balls that go 400, 500 feet, the balls that fly out of the ballpark were easy swings. And that's, to me, you, you engender and create that by practicing your mental skills. And so 
you know, if you're doing the journaling and goal setting, which is kind of step one, you're practicing the energy management relaxation, step two, then you're doing the focus and concentration skills. Now that includes techniques like having a keyword, like every time you step in the batter's box, finding a keyword that you can kind of anchor in. Imagery, keywords, mental routines are all kind of incorporated in that concentration. And then the fourth one that I talk about, which is basically having routines, uh, having structured, but not written in stone, structured, but flexible mental routines. And the idea of a routine is it generates that sense of confidence, composure, and concentration that's needed to do the task. And in ball sports like baseball, and there's a lot of standing time. There's a lot of sitting time in between these moments of intensity. And so you have to have a routine that kind of gears you up. Otherwise, you're likely to kind of fall into the mood. And, And hitters know that because if they've had two bad at bats. Oftentimes they're either stepping in their third at bat with a self-defeating thought that they're not, they can't hit this girl or they're thinking, um, why aren't they pinch hitting for me? Or I'm going to change it now. And now they're going to break it instead of just taking one pitch at a time and having their trusted routine. And, and there's all kinds of texts and journals. And, and to be honest, when I, when I present this to athletes and say, here's the four things that we're going to work on. It's a handout that's in our mental training manual that we use here in Green Bay. It's, it's, this is where you get started. And typically, if I see an athlete for a first time, say a high school athlete, and they come and meet with me and they say they want to get better and I give them, I don't see them for four to six weeks. Mm. And I give them a very clear expectation, journaling two to three times a week, do the relaxation three to four to five times a week, start practicing the imagery and we give them a script. And then I encourage them to start finding kind of mental routines and then write down those routines. And then I'll see you in a month. And they either come back with nothing, which tells me now it's a motivation issue mm. because I'm not giving you anything that you can't do, but I can't do it for you. And that's the key because I think motivation is what drives the ability to apply the skills. Just think of it this way. If I ask a group of, uh, we can say professional because I've worked a lot with professional athletes, but when I stand in front of a professional team and ask them from zero to hundred percent, what percent of your sport is mental? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get anything less than 90%. And most of the time, they're going to say 95 to almost all of it. So question two, of all the performance mistakes you make, what percent of your mistakes are mental mistakes? Now, what does that mean? It means I can do it, but I didn't do it when I had to, but I have the ability to do it, right? So if you're a 12-year-old hitter, you're still developing physical strength and you're still developing skills. So maybe getting a ball out of the infield isn't where you're at technically right now you're more of a slapper you get the ball down you're going to do different things but the reality is if i'm talking to elite athletes they're going to say all of their mistakes are mental mistakes because they can do the skill they can catch a football they can make a tackle they can make a play on the ball they know they have the ability to do it so if your sport is 90 percent mental and your mistakes are almost all mental. The third question I ask them is all the time you spend training, what percent do you do mental training? If you've just acknowledged that it's 90% or more mental, do you spend that much time doing that? Those four things I mentioned, if an athlete commits themselves to those interventions and those techniques, and I'm I'm talking intentional practice, not think about it, intentional practice. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about mom and dad making me go to my room and having me do it. I'm saying I do it on my own 
without prodding because it's important to me, it's going to take about 25 to 30 minutes a day. That's your time commitment. So when I ask a group room of professional athletes, whether it was Indiana Pacers or any team I've worked with, and I say, how many of you would say that if you were doing something different than you've ever done your whole athletics career for 25 minutes a day, and it helps you make one less, just one less mental mistake every game you compete, how many of you would say it's worth it? How many hands raise? Probably all of them. Every single one. Yeah. And then I ask them, then why am I only going to be working with 30% of you? See, this is the challenge about sports psychology. It's not about doing someone doing something to you, and so now they're elite and excellent. It's really about the athlete making a choice. How am I going to use this resource? If Ashley Burkhardt has some really good hitting drills and some good techniques, I'm going to pull from that. I'm going to learn from that. She may not be my only hitting coach in my career, but I'm going to pull from her and kind of implement how – and if a sports psychologist that I work with or a strength coach or a nutritionist, I need to take that information and then apply it and be intentional about my practice. And I think sports psychology suffers a little bit where people think it's all uh, kind of guru and gimmicks and I'm going to flush the toilet and it's all going to go away. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that are metaphors and represents. I'm a little bit more pragmatic, I think. It's kind of the way I process how I work with the athletes I work with. And the reason you had been, you got success yourself was because of your intentional commitment over time to the process. But beyond those four things, everything else is just kind of a sub, subscale intervention that fits underneath one of those four domains. That's awesome. And I love that breakdown. I really hope people are having their journals wide open right now and are taking notes because... I've already taken probably too many, if that's a thing. (laughs) And I'm loving this conversation so much. I really am interested to see what do you think... Why is there a stigma? Why is there a stigma around sports psychology? Yeah, I think psychology in general is a stigma because I think people think there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. That there's something wrong with you. That's why you need to go see a psychologist. But I don't hear athletes say... I'm going to go do my weight workout. Oh, you must be really weak physically, or you must be really slow runner. You must be very awkward and not very biomechanically efficient. No, you just go to a strength coach because it's part of what you do as an athlete to develop yourself. I think psychology is there's, there's just a societal stigma to it. And to be honest, um, you know, I was at Ohio state university for five years as a psychologist for their athletic department. If every single athlete at Ohio State wanted to take advantage, they said, oh, I've got this person who's been to world championships. He's worked with elite athletes, and I can go see him for free. We did a calculation one day. Some of the athletes would have had a two-year wait list to get in. Mm. So it's almost kind of right now where psychology is. It's kind of built to address the people who are either in crisis and need an intervention or someone who's really self-motivated. You know, one of the things I do is put together materials so athletes don't have to go and buy 10 books. They have very simple exercises and skills that they can incorporate, and then they can utilize me as a resource. I would say, though, Ashley, in the, in the length of time I've been in this career, I think the stigma is not as big. And um, I see a lot more receptivity. Even my team presentation, I've done two team talks this year here. It's very well received. We've had elite players on our team uh, speak publicly about the importance of mental health. 
I know that about a month or so ago, before he was injured, Dak Prescott from the Dallas Cowboys talked about it. There's a really powerful, moving statement by um, a tight end for the Atlanta Falcons who has his own foundation now, Hayden Hurst. And our quarterback yeah. is, and our quarterback has even uh, been very public about his support. And um, there wasn't a better validation for me than when the Packers had their press release about me being brought on full time that, you know, some of our veteran players were tweeting it out and uh, supportive. So I, I see it changing in a very good way. I, I worry about my discipline, frankly, and our, some people that don't want to take credit for the success of an athlete. I just want to be really good at what I do. So when athletes utilize me, they can be really good. Um, but I'm an old offensive lineman. I, I like being behind the scenes. <laughs> I like doing the work without recognition. Of course, I grew up and I trained in an era that didn't have social media. There wasn't websites. There wasn't. So your reputation was your best marketing. All right, guys, if you're loving this episode with Dr. Carr, which clearly you are, you're still here. I want to let you know about a podcast interview I did recently with Hannah Huseman. And she is the Phillies mental performance coordinator, one of them on staff. And so Dr. Carr talks about in this episode how the MLB is kind of getting it right. Like they have sports psychologists on staff, but they also have people that are helping athletes specifically with those routines and habits to help them get rid of that failure that they had faster so that they can help themselves this next at bat or this next play to move on. So she talks about specific mental skills and even more practices than what Dr. Carr is talking about on this podcast today, talking about having to become a little bit more mindful and in the present moment. And so she specifically talks about baseball players, which also baseball and softball are very close together in sports. So if you guys are interested, in that episode as soon as this one's done with Dr. Carr go ahead over to hers hers was posted on October 7th so you got to scroll down a little bit to find hers but hers was another one just like this so if you're loving this one definitely head to that one uh, once this one is over if you are just loving this conversation all right let's get back to the episode with Dr. Carr I've had the privilege to be keynote at the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. I've been very active in the NCA development of, but right now I'm at a stage where it's kind of fun to look back and really fun to be in this building in a kind of historical organization and to be kind of doing cutting edge stuff where everyone is receptive. And I'm sure there are stigmas here in our locker room, but for the most part, everyone's very receptive. I just think our society in general affiliates psychological skills as someone that is weak needs it but you're not going to be able to change everyone's stigma and perceptions of psychology i'm sure there are people don't believe strength training is helpful or working with a hitting coach is helpful so but i see it less now yeah that's so great yeah i think it's it's gotten better over particularly the past 20 25 years i've seen it get better so with the nfl having five of us full-time and i think every team has to have somebody i think it'll be in the next two to three years, you'll see a growth. NBA is the same way. Major League Baseball, of course, has been very advanced with sports psychology for many years. Now they have a lot of mental conditioning coaches, but they can be resources to help players learn these skills. So that's, as as long as the organization, I think, has a licensed psychologist to kind of be a mentor and supervisor, I think that's probably the best model. 
Yeah. So where are you seeing the buy-in then? So you probably, like you were saying before, people come in when there's a problem. What do you think clicks with athletes when they finally come in and they're like, oh no, I understand. This is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. What do you think is initiating that thought to meet with you because they know that that performance, their performance is going to get better. Like, how do you get that across? Well, I think it's a little bit different for a 14 and 15 year old than a yeah. 22, 23 year old. I think when we get a little bit older and our brains get a little bit more established, we know that, that our, our cognitive growth and our actual kind of neurophysiological growth continues to about 25, I think is where a neurologist and the neuropsych discipline kind of says is our full growth. When you're a professional athlete, I love the fact that it's about performance. I get college athletics is about development and, you know, it's the well-rounded academic athletic, although I don't know that that line's always real clear, but, <laughs> um, but I do know that that's kind of a mission. I, I frankly kind of enjoy being in an environment where you have to perform. And I think people well, oftentimes will say, well, professional sports pits, spits them out. And that, but everybody now understands that there's all these different elements involved in performance. And I think those athletes that have come in and met with me uh, are athletes that become aware, like this is something I can get better at. And what's really cool is when you're at this level of sport, doing the mental thing doesn't differentiate you this much. It's this much, mm -hmm. that much. That's what differentiates you. So sometimes when they come in, they talk, they get a couple cognitive behavioral kind of interventions and they practice it, they find their spot. Now it's validation that, okay, this can help me. And they're a little mm -hmm. bit more committed because they want to see success and that's okay. Because I know if you were going to go have surgery on your elbow or on your hip, I don't think you'd want an average surgeon. I think if you're going to get some dental work done, I don't think I want the dentist who's not very good at their craft. So I don't have a problem with elite performers and professional sports because you don't have to do this. Mm -hmm. But if you choose to do it, then look at the resources that can acknowledge and be aware of the stressors that you have as a professional athlete or as a high level collegiate athlete. I know my colleagues in the collegiate environment, we're dealing with a lot of stress to this COVID canceling seasons. You know, some athletes didn't get a chance to finish their last competitive careers. It's almost like you had a season ending injury. This pandemic is unlike anything I've ever experienced in, in my career and most of us have ever experienced. But the ones that are resilient and reestablish their goals and focus on things they do control and create internalized motivation and focus, they're going to be the ones that are most resilient and adapt the best so that when we do get to the end of this, and we will, you'll come out the better end without so much damage, extra baggage to kind of carry. Wow, that's awesome. So let's talk about the youth athlete, the one that doesn't have, you know, an awesome resource at their fingertips, you know, right. what are some ways that they can learn some of these things? I know you mentioned some books, podcasting is becoming a thing. Yeah. How can they find resources like you out there in the world? Well, there's, it's part of the challenge. I encourage parents and athletes to uh, don't assume anything off a website don't be hesitant to ask questions prior to scheduling appointments. I would not get three to five books. I would keep it very simple. A lot of the NGBs, national governing bodies of sports, so I don't know if USA softball, USA baseball, they all have their own websites. 
Mm-hmm. And my guess is through coaching education, they probably have information on mental training, sports psychology. I encourage a lot of parents just to go to those kind of websites, uh, just to gather information to read. I don't think you have to do, I see too many athletes that don't commit really enough time to just getting a basic mental skills program. They just read another book. And, and then what happens is you're basically, it's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different outcome. I think you sometimes have to kind of stop. Now, frankly, when I was in practice in Indianapolis and, and was seeing people that were high school, I did not meet with athletes under 11, 12 years of age unless they had a specific anxiety-based issue. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's about the age of 13 that our cognitive development, the development in our brain, allows us to do that third-person kind of recall that we need with visualization. So really asking a 10-year-old to visualize doesn't make sense because neurologically they're not there yet. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think that if a person does feel it would be helpful, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology does have what they call the Certified Mental Performance Consultant, or it's kind of a certification. And anybody can go on their website and look up, you know, by region and ge- geographics, people in their area. And that would be one kind of place that you could kind of go. I know Harvey Dorfman's books in baseball are kind of traditional books. Uh, you know, I I had met Harvey briefly before he passed years ago, but you know, my guess is most of the books are going to say the same thing. I, I tell unless unless to me it's better coming from the coaches, mm-hmm. whether it's a travel coach or a hitting coach that's kind of introducing the athletes to goal setting. You know, you have apps like Headspace that you can do relaxation and you just tell a young athlete, listen to this four to five times a week before you go to bed at night, start practicing and see if you can bring that breathing into taking a deep breath before you step in the batter's box or before we start this T-drill or whatever we're doing. But I think if you want to find someone, do some good interviewing. And if someone's calling themselves a sports psychologist, but they're not a licensed psychologist in your state, be careful. Mm-hmm. because I think that misrepresents what your actual training and what your actual position is. And and I know there's a lot of debate, and I've been in leadership positions in our field, and frankly, people don't like to hear me because I, I like to hold people accountable, mm-hmm. to, like I hold my clients accountable. I, I just I think you have to be very kind of cautious as you go through the process and understand that the skills are not difficult in and of themselves, and a good sports psychologist will kind of match the skills to where that client is at developmentally mm-hmm. and instead of just a one size fits all. Right, right. I do have to ask this because I did a little book club over COVID to help athletes think about other things. Yeah. Mind Gym was like the first book that came to mind to help athletes yeah. with. It's um, a great book. Gary Mack. Yeah. Gary Mack. Uh, I knew Gary when I was at Arizona and, and we lost him a num- number of years ago, but Gary wrote a really nice book. Terry Orlick, who is a Canadian sports psychologist, has written quite a bit about kids. And um, he has a book called In Pursuit of Excellence. And it's a very yeah. easy to read book, kind of gives you exercises. You know, uh, to me, exercises are only as good as how much you apply them into exactly. your own intentional practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So absolutely. And you helped me do that. I mean, I'm going to, I'm just going to say it out loud, you know, having the guidance that you gave me, they weren't big ginormous things to swallow. They're just simple tasks that you gave me. And, and yes, like that mind gym book, it's also kind of task oriented. It's, Hey, if you do this, you will see the results. And 
with my with the help that you gave me, I was able to find those results as well over time, right? We have to trust that it takes time to become great. But I want to be very conscious of your time because um, we only have a couple of minutes here. But first of all, I want to ask you some final questions and they're simple ones, but Sure. I just want to thank you for being on the show. This has been a blast. Before we even started recording, I was like, this just turned into a therapy session without even realizing <laughs> it. But I know so many people are going to find so much value in this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. Okay, so final questions, simple questions that I have for you. I need to know, what's what do you love about this this realm that you're in right now? What do you love about what you do the most? You know, I think it's like anything. If you go into the psychology profession, it's a helping profession. You're there to help people. And what's really, really powerful and engaging is to watch them help themselves Mm -hmm. and to watch them see the benefits of their work. Uh, There's nothing more exciting to me than, say, for example, last Sunday night after our game, uh, to be in the locker room, to have players come up and hug. They're celebratory. It's hard to win at this level at all. There's 20 talking heads next day telling you what you did wrong and how bad or good you'll be. But it's really the players in the locker room that make the difference. So it's cool to have that kind of connection, but to see them make that success and also to be a a unique resource when they're in time of pain and and hurt and working a lot with injured players that, you know, have lots of different challenges. So to me, that's the value. I, I have to say, like I said earlier, I, I'm very proud of my career and proud of what I've done, but it's athletes like you who were willing, open, and honest to begin the process and made a commitment to yourself to change, and then you see the results of that. It's all due to your intentional practice and, and determination for yourself. And and if I'm a resource to help support and gain some awareness, then I that's what I enjoy doing. But um, I think that's kind of the place that I get the most enjoyment. Mm. That's so awesome. I love that. I have to know because I feel like sports psychologists probably have some some movies, some sports movies that they love most and probably because they talk about sports psychology or if they just do it and it's part of the movie. I have a couple in mind that I love, but I want to know what your favorite sports movie is. So from a sports movie and I've taught sports psychology classes at the collegiate level. So I've, you know, I've incorporated it as far as motivation uh, and the role of faith. I think Chariots of Fire is one of my favorite. It's a mm. 1981 movie story about Eric Little, a very powerful movie. I think The Legend of Bagger Vance is one of the most kind of beautiful yes. movies that really identifies where self-confidence, dealing with conflict and application of calm, mindful, focused performances. And it's a golf movie. I I really like for love of the game. Not that it was necessarily a, it was more of a love story than a Mm -hmm. baseball movie, but Kevin Costner and, and there are some great scenes about the ability to focus, clear clear the the mechanism, mechanism, yes, (laughs) uh, implement some of those skills and strategies. You know, I, I love the movie Goodwill Hunting, Robin Williams and Matt Damon, because instead of athletic acumen, this is about a young man who has intellectual acumen who's like a savant who's brilliant but he has to see robin williams as therapist and there's some really powerful scenes that connect to me because robin williams is saying look i can't help you unless you want help and unless you're willing to let go and and deal with your pain and and that was very powerful so um field of dreams is just a favorite because it's about passion and commitment those are some of the movies that i connect to the most uh, I'm so glad I asked that question because <laughs> we matched on a couple and I love that. Oh, that's cool. 
<laughs> All right. Last question that I have for you is what is your definition of mental toughness? Well, it's actually an academic question because it used to be when I played college football, mental toughness was the ability to practice three hours without a water break, which is now we found is stupidity because uh-huh. that's why we had hamstring cramps and all kinds of things. But I grew up in a different era, so to speak. Mental toughness, the best description, and I use it in our work here. Uh, Graham Jones and his colleagues over at Loughborough University in the UK, they actually kind of broke it down and they've done what we call operational definition where they did research on it. They said mental toughness is basically the ability to be better than your opponent at remaining determined, confident, focused, and in control under pressure. So to me, attributes of mental toughness are that self-belief You see adversity as an opportunity for growth, not as a representation of your ability, but an opportunity for growth. You have more internal motivation than external motivation. You're driven from within. You have great mechanism to keep calm in the face of adversity and stay calm and composure. I remember, um, and I share this before, when I, the first year I worked with the Royals, there was a player that was basically the 25th man on the roster. So he was a utility guy. He would run out on the field and catch the pitcher when he was warming up if the catcher needed to put his gear on. He would go out and take infield. He would take outfield. He would do everything he could. And I always remember that at the end of the game in like the eighth, ninth inning, the bench coach would get up and start looking at the board, the, 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 the player sheet where, you know, where they're keeping stats. And he would start looking at it to basically start looking at who could pitch hit. And you'd see some guys kind of get in their coats and kind of shrink into the wall like they were avoiding contact. And yet this player would grab a bat in the eighth and ninth inning and walk through the dugout just swinging the bat. Almost as if he was saying to the bench coach, I'm ready to go in. Mm -hmm. He loved the opportunity to compete. And to me, that is what a mentally tough athlete does. They understand and accept that failure is part of growth. So failure doesn't define me as a failure, but it's just part of my learning. Now, if I don't make changes, I'm more than likely to to fail again. But to me, that's what mental toughness is about. It's determination, confidence, composure, and focus. And if you can build those skills through mental training uh, to your best of your ability, I think you'll then get the best out of yourself. I never believe Oh, I was a division one athlete hiding in a division three, but I was a division three athlete, but I'm always confident. I got, I started for two years on a team that only lost three games in four years. I had a lot of success. I achieved probably the best of my athletic ability and it wasn't at the division one level, but I'm very proud of the accomplishments and academically the same way. So I think we all have to reset, not compare ourselves to others and just be the best we can be. And that's to me what mental toughness is about. Wow. No better way to end the show. That was an incredible answer and you are incredible. Thank you so much for giving so much of your time and energy into helping others, especially the, that youth, that youth that might need us a little bit more than, than most right now. So thank well, you so much for your time, Dr. Carr. And thank you for the invitation, Ashley. I'm sorry it took us a while to get connected, but also understand the reason you had success and feel this is a value is the commitment you put to yourself. And if I'm sure you put that same commitment to your clients, the, the athletes you work with. I think, you know, in the world of professional sports and youth sports, there's all this individualized. But if you get a coach or trainer who has this kind of commitment to the mental side, I think you're going to get the most out of the training. So, you know, congratulations to you and everything you've done. And you'll be a great asset for a lot of uh, young people moving forward. So I'm glad I could spend some time with you. 
Thank you so, so much. This has been an honor for me. Absolutely. I can't leave this episode without discussing some of the incredible quotes Dr. Carr left us today. The fact that slump is an excuse for a bad next at bat. Who thought of it this way? I love this quote. I don't think I'm ever going to refer to a slump again in my life. And when I hear an athlete or a parent do it, I'm going to shut them up right away and say, there is no such thing as a slump. You're allowing your head to create a slump which is the reason why you're in it. Wowza, that was a huge bullet point for me. And this one, the more self-awareness you have as an individual, the more you hold yourself accountable. These are specific words that when I talk about journaling to athletes, I can't explain it as good as he does. Like the fact that you journaling about your thoughts and your feelings is actually helping you become more aware of yourself. And that's going to help you become one of the best performance performers on your team or just the best performer you want to be. So the fact that your self-awareness is literally self-taught and journaling is an outlet for that, man, oh man, is that, was that just an insane bullet point? (sighs) There's so much, so many gems in here. The goal setting part, the focusing on concentration, the visualization and the feel, (sighs) so many incredible things. So in the show notes, you guys can find all of the links that Dr. Carr talked about in this episode. So when he talked about some of his buddies that have books or some resources like the Mind app that he was talking about or the Calm app, those things you can find in the show notes um, as some of them are free resources um, and the books that we talked about like Mind Gym and the Mental Performance of Baseball, you can find that there. So head to the show notes, you can find links to find those things. Um, But also, I want you guys to use and realize that this episode, it's okay if you listen to it more than once. And I'm saying this because this is now my fifth time listening to this conversation with Dr. Carr. No exaggeration. I learn so much more the second or third time than I did even the first time that I listened. So if you love this and you're like, this has got to be one that we listen to often to remind ourselves of where we are now and where we're headed and and techniques on how to fix these things, download this podcast to your phone and just keep it forever. And I'm not saying this selfishly because it helps our ratings. It really doesn't help that much, but it will help you when you need something to start taking action with. I have started developing more mindfulness practices because I've listened to this episode more than once. So if your athlete simply just needs a little bit of a pick-me-up or like a, hey, I got a little bit away from my goals. Now I need to get back on track. Re-listening to this again is not going to hurt. Trust me. So if you felt like this episode really resonated with you and or your athlete, please share this with one friend. I know I say this every week, but I'm dead serious about this. You sharing this with one other person can help this game grow to heights it's never been. And you can help grow this game by simply doing that. So thank you so much for tuning in this week, guys. As you know, I love Dr. Carr. I loved every second of this episode, and I hope you did too. And I'm excited for you guys to see what's going to be on the pod next week. But until then, stay awkward and keep smiling. See you later.